Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Special guest. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Special guest. gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. This week, I'm super excited to, well, for two reasons. One is because we're going to be talking about Interview with a Vampire, which (laughs) I have so many thoughts and feelings about, and also is like kind of a big deal for a lot of reasons. But also because the person who is here to talk about it with me today is Leah. Yay! Yay! Welcome back, Leah. And if you don't recognize her voice or you recognize it, but you can't remember what you have heard her on before, well, she has been on this podcast in the past, not that long ago, actually. Let's see here. We talked about. So we've done Jurassic Park and Enola Holmes and High Fidelity. High Fidelity. That's right. Three. So you are, this is your fourth time. I think you and Chris are, besides Jennifer, are my most frequent returning guests. So yes. yeah, exactly. Um, that probably means I need to send you some pages and popcorn swag. What? What? Did I say pages and popcorn swag? Why, yes, I did. Did you know that we have a store on our website where you can buy pages and popcorn swag, which supports the show and makes, may I say, excellent holiday gifts? Just saying. All of that can be found at kmmamedia.com. How's that for a segue? <laughs> Pretty good. You're cool, a right? pro. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally a pro. Um, yes, kmmamedia.com. Pages and Popcorn podcast has a tab up there. So does Ghostropology, our other podcasts that we do. And you can find show notes and sources and ways to contact us. And you can listen to the podcast right there without downloading anything if that's your jam. So, check that out. Of course, you can email us at pages and popcorn podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter, sort of. You can find me and KMMA Media on Instagram. I am also on TikTok, on BookTok TikTok, talking about books and promoting all sorts of stuff. So that is all that for the intro, I think. And so now we are going to talk about Interview with the Vampire. Interview with the Vampire is a gothic horror and vampire novel by American author Anne Rice. It was published in 1976. And here is our recap. A vampire, the vampire, named Louis de Pointe du Lac, 
tells his 200-year-long life story to a reporter referred simply to as The Boy. In 1791, Louis is a young indigo plantation owner living in Louisiana. His brother thinks himself a prophet, and Louis laughs at him. The brother then falls from the top of the stairs. Is it suicide? And people blame Louis. Distraught by his brother's death and his guilt, Louis seeks death in any way possible and is eventually approached by a vampire named Lestat, who desires Louis's company. Well, Really, he desires Louis's ability to move in high society and Louis's wealth, but at first it seems more like company-driven. Lestat turns Louis into a vampire, and the two become immortal companions. Lestat spends time feeding off slaves, while Louis, who finds it morally repugnant to murder humans to survive, feeds from animals. Louis is enamored by Lestat, but also hates him, because that enamoration, it wore through very quickly. He sees that Lestat is just using him, most notably for money and fancy things, and Lestat keeps alluding to the fact that he knows more about being a vampire than Louis, but he isn't super forthcoming with the info. Louis also becomes fascinated with the humans in their area, specifically one family. The young man, eldest son of the family, who's gotten Lestat's attention, and Lestat wants to kill him something awful, well, he'd gotten mixed up in a duel, and this is going to end badly, especially for his five sisters. Louis feels badly for these sisters and wants to help. He physically stops Lestat from killing the young man before the duel can even happen. And then, wonder of wonders, the young man wins the duel, but then there's a scuffle and Lestat spirits him away and kills him anyway, which really makes Louis mad. He decides to befriend the eldest sister, Babette, and appear to her as a helpful spirit and give her advice, which she takes, and the family is somehow saved from ruin. Eventually, Louis's slaves begin to fear the monsters with which they live, and they instigate an uprising. Louis sets his own plantation aflame. He and Lestat kill the slaves to keep word from spreading about vampires living in their part of the neighborhood. And they seek safety in Babette's, but she rejects Louis and calls him a devil and an evil thing. So then they make their way to New Orleans. Gradually, Louis bends under Lestat's influence and begins feeding from humans. He slowly comes to terms with his vampire nature, but also becomes increasingly repulsed by what he sees as Lestat's total lack of compassion for the humans that he preys upon. Louis is more careful, except that once, after a fight with Lestat and full of inner ennui, Louis feeds off of a plague-ridden five-year-old little girl whom he finds next to the corpse of her mother. Louis begins to think of leaving Lestat and going his own way. They argue because Lestat has figured out that Louis is about to bail on him, and so he, Lestat, turns that little girl into a vampire. This is now our daughter. And now Louis has a reason to stay, or rather a reason to not leave. She is then given the name Claudia. Louis is initially horrified that Lestat has turned a child into a vampire. Lestat threatens her, though, and Louis stays and soon begins to care deeply for Claudia. Claudia takes to killing easily, but she begins to realize over time that she can never grow up. Her mind matures into that of an intelligent, assertive woman, but her body remains that of a young girl. Claudia blames Lestat for her condition, and after 60 years of living with him, hatches a plot to kill Lestat by poisoning him and cutting his throat. Claudia and Louis then dump the body in a nearby swamp. As Louis and Claudia prepare to flee to Europe, Lestat reappears, having recovered from the attack and attacks them in turn. Louis sets fire to their home and barely escapes with Claudia, leaving a furious Lestat to be consumed by the flames. Arriving in Europe, Louis and Claudia seek out more of their kind. They travel through Eastern Europe first and do indeed encounter vampires, but these vampires appear to be nothing more than mindless animated corpses. It is only when they reach Paris that they encounter vampires like themselves, specifically the 400-year-old vampire Armand and his coven at the Theatre des Vampires, inhabiting an ancient theatre. 
Armand and his vampire coven disguise themselves as humans and feed on live, terrified humans in mock plays before live human audiences who think the killings are merely a very realistic performance. Armand, by the way, is very young and auburn-haired when all the other vampires have dyed their hair black because black is the color of vampires. Claudia is repulsed by these vampires and what she considers to be their cheap theatrics. Louis and Armand are drawn to one another, like really drawn to one another. Convinced that Louis is going to leave her for Armand, Claudia convinces Louis to turn a Parisian doll maker, Madeline, into a vampire to serve as a replacement companion. Louis, Madeline, and Claudia live together for a brief time, but all three are abducted one night by Armand's coven. Not everyone in the coven likes Louis, you see. There is dissension among the ranks. Apparently, the big sin for a vampire is to kill its own kind, and the coven, specifically Santiago, are pretty sure that Louis and Claudia have done this crime and should be punished for it. Also, apparently there's a second not as big sin about making somebody into a, a child into a vampire, but you know, one major sin, can't kill your own kind. So the three are taken to the theater, and who should greet them? It's Lestat. He survived the fire in New Orleans. His accusations against Louis and Claudia result in Louis being locked into a coffin to starve, while Claudia and Madeleine are locked in an open courtyard to die. Because again, punishment for killing is, is death. Okay. Armand arrives and releases Louis from his coffin, but Madeleine and Claudia have been burnt to death by the rising sun, and a devastated Louis finds their ashen remains. Louis returns to the Theatre des Vampires late the following night, burning it to the ground and killing all the vampires inside, including Stat, he hopes, and then leaving Paris with Armand, who wasn't there. He warned him, of course, you know. Together, the two travel across Europe for several years, but Louis never fully recovers from Claudia's death, and he blames Armand for letting it happen. It's also a bit uncomfortable that then Armand, well, let him go and burn all the heaven members, you know, his vampire family. There's just not a lot of trust here. So the emotional connection between himself and Armand eventually dissolves. Tired of the old world, Louis returns to New Orleans in the early 20th century. Living as a loner, he feeds off any humans who happen to cross his path, but lives in the shadows never creating another companion and just being lonely. And then, oh my God, Lestat is also in New Orleans. He has made at least one new companion, but is also going mad in an old house and Louis gets a bit of closure by being, oh yeah, I don't need you anymore, so later. This was in the 1920s, by the way, and they pretty much went their separate ways after that. Louis ends his tale. After 200 years, he is weary of immortality and of all the pain and suffering of which he's had to bear witness and you know participate in the boy the reporter remember him yeah the boy however seeing only the great powers granted to a vampire begs to be made into a vampire himself angry that his interviewer has learned nothing from his story louis refuses he attacks the boy drains him but does not kill him and then vanishes without a trace the boy wakes up the next day and then leaves to track down the stat in the hopes that he will give him the gift of immortality the end so that was that was the book. And then Interview with the Vampire is a 1994 American Gothic horror film directed by Neil Jordan based on Anne Rice's 1976 novel by the same name. It stars, among others, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Ahem. 
In modern day San Francisco, reporter Daniel interviews Louis, who claims to be a vampire. Louis describes his human life as a wealthy plantation owner in 1791 Spanish Louisiana. Despondent following the death of his wife and unborn child, he drunkenly wanders the waterfront of New Orleans, seeking death, and one night is attacked by the vampire Lestat. Lestat senses Louis' dissatisfaction with life and offers to turn him into a vampire. Louis accepts, but quickly comes to regret it. While Lestat revels in the hunt and killing of humans, Louis resists his instinct to kill. Instead, he drinks animal blood to sustain himself. Disgusted by Lestat's pleasure in killing, Louis comes to suffer tremendously as a vampire. The two of them live in Louis's plantation for a while, but eventually the slaves become suspicious. There's an uprising. Louis frees them all and burns the house, trying to maybe kill himself, but Lestat rescues him and they make off for New Orleans. Lestat enjoys tormenting his victims, and this disgusts Louis. One night, in particular, they argue and Louis leaves in a huff, wandering the streets of New Orleans. Amid an outburst of plague, Louis can resist his hunger no more and feeds on a little girl whose mother has died in the plague. To entice Louis to stay with him, Lestat turns this dying girl, Claudia, into a vampire. Together, they raise her as a daughter. Louis has a pure fatherly love for Claudia, while Lestat spoils her and treats her more like a pupil, training her to become a merciless killer. 30 years pass and Claudia matures psychologically but remains a little girl in appearance and continues to be treated as such by Lestat. When she finally realizes that she will never grow older or become a mature woman, she is furious with Lestat and tells Louis that they should leave him. She tricks Lestat into drinking the dead blood of twin boys who she killed by an overdose of laudanum, laudanum, which weakens Lestat and then slits his throat. Though Louis is shocked and upset by Lestat's death, he helps Claudia dump Lestat's body in an alligator swamp. They spend weeks planning a voyage to Europe to search for other vampires, but Lestat returns on the night of their departure, having survived on the blood of swamp creatures. Lestat attacks them. Louis sets him on fire, and in the ensuing blaze, they are able to escape to their ship and depart. After traveling around Europe and the Mediterranean but finding no other vampires, Louis and Claudia settle harmoniously in Paris in 1870. Louis encounters vampire Santiago and Armand by chance. Armand invites Louis and Claudia to his coven, the Theatre des Vampires, where the vampires stage theatrical horror shows for humans. On their way out of the theater, Santiago reads Louis's mind and suspects that Louis and Claudia have murdered Lestat. Armand warns Louis to send Claudia away for her own safety, and Louis is intrigued, stay with Armand, and learn about the meaning of being a vampire. Are they evil? Is there a god? Is there a devil? What are they here for? Blah, 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 blah. Claudia demands that Louis turn a human woman, Madeline, into a vampire to be her new protector and companion, and he reluctantly complies. Shortly thereafter, the Parisian vampires abduct the three of them and punish them for Lestat's murder, imprisoning Louis in a coffin, trapping Claudia and Madeleine in a chamber where sunlight burns them to ash. Armand does nothing to prevent this, but the next day he frees Louis. Seeking revenge, Louis re returns to the theater at dawn, sets it on fire, killing all the vampires, including Santiago. Armand arrives in time to help Louis escape the sunrise and once again offers him a place by his side. Louis rejects Armand, though, and leaves him. He knows that Armand had allowed Claudia's murder so that he could have Louis all to himself, and Louis is not over that. As the decades pass, Louis never recovers from the loss of Claudia and dejectedly explores the world alone. He returns to New Orleans in 1988 and one night encounters a decayed, weakened Lestat living as a recluse in an abandoned mansion and surviving on rat blood as Louis once had. Lestat expresses regret for having turned Claudia into a vampire and asks Louis to join him, but Louis declines, has his closure, and leaves. Louis concludes his interview with Daniel, the reporter, prompting Daniel to beseech Louis to make him a vampire. He'll be his companion. Louis is outraged that Daniel has not understood the tale of suffering that he's related and attacks Daniel to scare him into abandoning the idea. 
which sort of works. Louis vanishes. Daniel runs to his car and takes off. He's terrified. He plays the cassette tapes of Louis's interview in his car. The music swells. This could be the end, but no. On the Golden Gate Bridge, Lestat appears and attacks Daniel, taking control of the car. Revived by Daniel's blood, Lestat offers Daniel the, quote, choice he never had, whether or not to become a vampire, and then laughing, continues driving over the bridge. The end. So obviously neither one of us were alive when this book came out Mm -hmm. and I was 13 when the movie came out Mm -hmm. in 1994. I remember the movie coming out. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? Did you see it? You wouldn't have seen this in the theater, right? I did not see this in the theater. I I, I watched it. I'm not sure if I watched it close to when it came out or a few years after it came out. I want to say I watched it around 1997 with my mom who's the one I usually watch movies with but I don't think I watched it when I was 14. Yeah no I I know I know that there's no it's a rated R there's no way I would have seen this movie at 13. I honestly I know that I had seen it Mm -hmm. but I could not remember when or how or why and I probably I don't know I don't know and then but I also know that I was fascinated with the with the book and I don't remember if originally I I think I read this book so this is my my probably inaccurate memory I feel like I read this book in high school because I knew about the movie I knew I would never be allowed to go see the movie my parents were not going to like for that but I found the book in the library and read the book and then eventually saw the movie and then at at some point when she started writing the other vampire novels i read like a lot of them oh okay so you have a little bit more context for the broader world yeah in fact i mean the next two are very interesting and then then it kind of takes a takes a turn and there's it's a lot it's a lot of stuff but um there is one book in that series in particular that I was reading in college, which was very instrumental in my personal journey away from my Christian faith. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, uh, which is a totally different topic. We can talk about some other time. But so I know that between high school and college, at that point in college, I was reading Anne Rice's books. And I also read all of her erotica. Like I, I went through an Anne Rice phase <laughs> for sure i think i have read probably until her later stuff when she got it she became super which is funny i lost my faith by reading ann rice and then at one point ann rice became super much more christian mm-hmm. and then i stopped following her and then really haven't read anything and now she's not that kind of christian she's a fascinating person anyways but that's not what we're here to talk about not specifically so yes okay the book so you had had you ever read the book no I'm pretty sure I did not read it. Was it what you expected? Because it was exactly what I remember in a lot of ways, the book. Yes, it, it was sort of, if, if I went in with any preconceptions, I would say they probably met with the book. Yes. Okay, so just to get this out of the way, both the book and the movie get a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. Like uh, people really love to hate these things. And there, there are elements that I think are worthy of our like, okay, you know, kind of maybe rolling your eyes. There's mm-hmm. she's, she's her writing style is not going to be everybody's cup of tea for mm-hmm. sure. However, 
I sometimes when people say how much they dislike this book or movie, I feel like they're forgetting a that it was so unique and it totally changed everything. And so I feel like you might not like Twilight Mm -hmm. and you might take your angst against Twilight and put it here. Like, oh, vampire books, you know, like this is the book that started all this because of this book, we had Twilight and we had all these other things. And I don't like those other things, blah, blah, blah. And I also think that there is a certain element of you and I have talked before about how people don't like girl things, things that are geared for girls, pumpkin spice latte, BTS or freaking Twilight books. Right. Like and if it's geared for younger women or girls, it tends to be okay to mock in our Mm -hmm. society this book wasn't geared for younger girls, but it's definitely geared for people who are on the outskirts of society. There's a lot of elements in here that really appeal to marginalized groups. And I so also I- think it's geared quite strongly towards women. I just feel like the target audience, particularly for when it came out, was probably more women than men. And anything that tends to be more female aligned tends to get shit on. I found I had to keep reminding myself over and over that the stuff in this book was not cliche when it was written. It created the cliches. All the stuff with like the little girl vampire, that was shockingly revolutional when it came out. Like that was, I remember being just horrified at that. Like, oh my God, you know, but you have to put yourself back there because now it's like, oh, that's been done eight million different ways you know the whole like struggle with morality and what it means to be a vampire and their society and stuff I mean we can look at lots of things that have come after it and be like well this person did it better that franchise did it better this yeah that's fine but this was the first and I think it spawned and inspired a lot of the mythos and so we have to give it that we have to give it credit for that rather than being like oh it's old and done Exactly. And like in the seventies, there was this thing in literature where we were getting like kind of the stuff behind the monster. Like we were, as a society, we were starting to think about monsters in a slightly different way. And I, this is definitely a 1970s book and it definitely feels like that. And it feels like we're taking this trope of a monster and then doing the inverse of it. Cause Louis isn't monstrous for most of it. He is sympathetic and sad, you know, and like, I know that wears on people, but I think that wears on people because like we expect our monsters to be monsters. And it's, it's more complicated when you have a monster who's not monstrous, or you have an evildoer who struggles with the concept of evil. Mm -hmm. And so that's, it's just, it's very interesting. Of course, we wouldn't have Twilight without this. We wouldn't have Buffy the Vampire Slayer without this. That's what I was thinking. There's a lot, like, I can definitely see how Buffy carried on that sort of concept of the tortured vampire. See a lot of parallels almost between Angel and Spike in their early years and the way they were portrayed with Angel being more Lestat and Spike actually being more Louie. And then their growth pattern, Angel was cursed, obviously. So he had to feel and change and grow. and, And Spike kind of did what Louie ends up doing which is like I have to embrace the monster or I'm gonna die that's right like the options are death or being a monster right and you know in especially in this book in an interview 
they didn't know how they would die. Right. It's at first anyways, eventually I think they kind of figure out a few things, but you know, so if you think I will never live and I can either suffer or I can do what it is in my quote unquote nature to do, you know, like it becomes, it becomes kind of a moral thing, but I, I like what you said, where you thought that this book was geared towards women in my head. If it wasn't written in the seventies, Louis would have been a female protagonist. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like Louis is written very feminine. We, like the way that Louis mm-hmm. is described, the way that Louis encounters the world, the way that Louis thinks the Louis is the parental figure. Louis struggles with this, that Louis has this thing about life and this thing about compassion, not to say that there aren't men who do that, but Lestat seems to embody a lot of these quote unquote, toxic masculinity things. He's the abuser in the relationship. He's the control freak. He's the one who's using the child against the woman so that she can't leave, you know, these things. There's elements of domestic violence here. There's elements Mm -hmm. of them being, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I, I think it would probably would have been too much to have it be a female vampire, you know, at that time who was all full of ennui, but I can definitely see where Louis plays into that kind of thing. And why he is very appealing to, to women mm-hmm. for sure, or, or hated by women. And maybe there's a little bit of like self-hatred there too, you know, about yeah. why do women hate that? So this is really interesting. What, one of my themes is the dichotomy between Louis and Lestat. Yes. Right. And I liked what you said about Angel and Spike too, because it's definitely the same, same kind of thing, like the two sides of the same, mm-hmm. the same coin. Yeah. The, so I think that there's a lot of foils going on in the book itself. I, I actually feel like the whole book, the whole premise of the book of vampires, she's using vampires as a foil for sin nature for the concept of evil residing in us and us and it being inescapable. Mm-hmm. And she's taking that to this extreme with the vampires. But everything that they do and they struggle with is really innate to people. So the whole book is like a question of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean if you take away those essential human elements, the like moral compass the family relationships and and the vampires in the book spend the entire, their entire lives seeking after their humanity, essentially seeking after things that will ground them in the world. They, They seek after family and friendship and connections. That concept of loneliness just is, is through the entire book. And it's clearly not just Louis, although it's told from his perspective and he is very lonely, but it it's not just him. It's every single character. Like Armand becomes obsessed with Louis because Louis makes him feel a connection, right? And he needs that to remain. I, I think it's really fascinating that they spend so much time being obsessed with humans, but it's couched in this, we took it for granted mm-hmm. what we had and now we miss it and we don't have it. And a, there's a couple points. One is, and they did this in both book and movie. I was glad this left in, in both. He has his final sunrise mm-hmm. right before he becomes a vampire. And he's like, I remember every detail of that sunrise, even though I'd never really paid attention to the sun, any sunrise before that. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, it's about to go away and you love, and you don't you focus on it. And the other thing is he spent all this time thinking about the Mediterranean. And when you think about the Mediterranean sea and you think about these coastlines, you think of the beautiful blue water, 
but he's a vampire and he's only awake at nighttime. And so he gets to the Mediterranean Sea after years and years and it's black. It looks the same as all other water in the world. Mm -hmm. And it is like completely empty. And that is such a letdown. And I, I love the fact that it's interwoven in this book of the lesson basically about don't take for granted what you have because people who lose it, they spend all of their time wishing they could get it back. Like they're obsessed with that. And that's, that's a lesson right there. So in terms of her being groundbreaking in the genre, I think that her portrayal of vampires as basically creatures of avarice, of constant consumption and, and hunger was groundbreaking for the genre. And I think that that's become like pretty normalized across the vampire genre, that they, they struggle with this constant hunger but this constant need to be filled they feel empty and they need to fill it and they fill it with feeding because it's the only thing that makes them feel good but they also fill it with beauty with poetry and and music and drama and and opulence because they're just they're trying to consume. Well, and they're so sensitive. They have like sensory, you know, perception disorders, but like, you know, like everything, like you can get lost in looking at a flame for six hours and yes. whatever. So of course they're going to be drawn to music. I love it. When Louis like having this crisis, he goes to the Louvre mm-hmm. and like even Lestat, who's our bad guy, he wants to go to the opera. He is drawn to like these textures and stuff. He wants the fancy clothes. He wants the stuff. And part of that is obviously bridging from his humanity of being. He obviously was poor and is like, likes the high life now because he has it, but there's a lot of texture to it. You know, Mm -hmm. I love what you're saying about that need to be filled and how that is such a human thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I really like what you said about, about their, the, they're trying to figure out their humanity and where that line is. She took it to this, this extreme of mm-hmm. the vampires, but they're symbolic of how we all struggle with our sense of evil and good and what is innate to us. Mm-hmm. And so coming from a Catholic background as she was, and the idea of original sin, and yes. you're all born as sinners, and then yada, 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 you got to go through these steps, but we all have this inherent sin nature and yes. we have to choose to be sinners or not to be sinners and how that struggle is easier for some people than others. Mm-hmm. Some people really struggle with that, but and also gets- that sense of entropy, that inevitability, right? Like you can only hold out against your nature so long. So Louis ate rats and animals for a very long time. He fed off of those. And he said he was lying to himself by saying it was an aesthetic choice when the reality was he was afraid of becoming that monster. He was trying not to go that final step as he viewed it to into full monsterhood. So there's that struggle. But the idea that with the vampires, it is inevitable. That's very pessimistic, right? It's very pessimistic. And they view it as inevitable because they're eternal. And it's like, how long can you struggle against it? But at no point in there do they think, maybe I should just stop existing. It's interesting to me that the stopping their existence part comes when they lose the connection to their humanity, that they end up in despair. So rather than turning into a, like, becoming a completely, you know, free monster and, and indulging in their sin and being satisfied with their monstrousness, when they give up the last of their humanity, the last connection to the world, 
they realize they'll never have any fulfillment and that leads to depression and despair and eventually needing the sunrise. So it's interesting, they recognize they need their humanity, they need that connection, but they also believe that it's inevitable that they will lose that connection. Yeah, like I said, it's a it's a pessimistic view. And if we're seeing the, the vampires as metaphors for us, it's a pretty pessimistic view of well, us too. It is. One of the things I feel that the, the movie did not convey as well was all the religious iconography yeah. concepts. Because I feel like there's a lot of those through the book that are both very overt and more hidden. Like there's a bit in the Bible somewhere in Genesis where God basically is like, I'm limiting your days on earth for to be kind to you. That like the, our lifespan is a kindness so that we don't have to exist on earth with our sin for eternity. And the vampires are kind of that, right? They are tied to this earth for eternity unable to escape that mm -hmm. and there's this bit in there that's taken directly out of out of genesis where the curse on cain because he's having this these are the this is the odd thing about his pro the prose right because sometimes he goes into these sort of trance-like states and talks about it but it is this really happening is this not really happening is this a dream so at one point he goes to the cathedral and he go and he has this vision of a funeral this is in the book. This is not in the movie. This right, right, right. stuff cut out of the movie. And he sees Claudia at Lestat's funeral and she quotes at him this section of Genesis that is, and now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth, and whoever slayeth thee, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And I'm like, that is a fascinating thing to quote at him, because the implication to me is that the vampirism is the curse of Cain. That mm. they have been cursed to walk the earth and spread destruction where they go. And they, they are a they're part of the curse on humanity and that that is the mark of Cain for them. So there's all this religious stuff that's mm -hmm. both overt, but also like you kind of have to understand the context, the biblical context to be like, oh, whoa, that means this. Yeah, yeah. So there's those hidden, hidden bits. And then there's a lot of overt stuff, like I was saying before, you know, Babette calls him evil and he starts to really struggle with this evil. One of the first things when he finds Armand, Finally, a vampire who's been around for a long time, who, who's willing to answer his questions. And literally the first thing that Louis asks is like, so are we devils? Are we the devil's children? Like, mm -hmm. like God hates us, right? Like we're, we're evil, right? Like that, so, so devil, should we be worshiping him? Like, he's like obsessed with this. And Armand's like, that doesn't matter. That is not a thing. I'll say whatever you want me to say because blah, 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 blah. And then he never really answers. And I think part of that is because she wasn't sure what she wanted to do with that. But like, it, it's it's obsessive. What Louis is doing is, is because of his religion and because of how, and because the idea of evil is so prevalent in the culture, it was Spanish Louisiana, mm -hmm. right? So you have these Creole people and you have, they're very tied into these different you know, ethnic religions. And it, of course it's going to carry over for him. Like there's no, there's no atheist vampires, even though Armand is pretty much like, oh yeah, there's, I've never heard of, I don't know about anything about God, but maybe there's God, you know, he's just going to say whatever. It's fascinating. And you're right. Like that was a lot of that religious stuff was left out of the movie. 
Mm-hmm. So the screenplay was also written by Anne Rice. Well, the, the first draft of it, and um, then they changed the draft, but because of the Writers Guild rules, she still gets the billing, but she wasn't uh, as active as you might think just by reading that credit Okay, line. that's that's good, because I'm like, this is interesting, because what stuff was kept and what stuff was dropped, it's, I will admittedly, it's not that long a book, but it is packed with yeah. stuff. So trying to get all that stuff into a movie, it would be a challenge. Here's the thing with this book and kind of with the movie, but definitely with the book, there's not a lot of plot here, but there's a lot of just, it's very wordy, even though there's not a lot that happens. There's a lot of conversations and a lot Mm -hmm. of people thinking about things. The first half of this book flies by and the second half of the book for me dragged and dragged and dragged and I was like oh my god another time where you're going to wander the streets and think about things oh we're back in the streets thinking about things Mm -hmm. but like there was more action at the beginning part which was interesting and yet the movie seems to spend more time in the end of the book yes then it definitely those early bits of the are, are definitely setting up for the theater and the theater of the vampires is more the exciting part when in the book, they were kind of, they, it was a letdown. It was. I, I would say, like, where, where was the climax in the book? Yeah, exactly. What, there, what I mean, is we're both the kind of like, there's, there's no climax here. This is like a guy's meandering. And then I did this. And then I did this. And then this happened. And this happened. Now here I am. In the movie, we build up to a climax, and then we, which is basically the death of Claudia. And then the, the falling action is kind of what happens after that, which is very climatic in the movie. And we're going to talk more about the changes, but Claudia's death is off screen in the book. Like, because mm-hmm. Louis's not there. And because the book is literally Louis talking, if he's not there, it doesn't happen doesn't, in the book. You know, like he it. references it. So yeah, you don't see it. So like, we don't see her die. It, he knows that it happened. He finds remains and stuff, but it is not nearly as graphic, gory, visceral, or sad as it is in the movie because he's like, and then that had happened. And then he goes on, but then he's with Armand for a really long time. There's several more conversations to be had. There's all of this other stuff. So like, even though that is very climatic, it is not the climax of the book in the same way. Also, Lestat is there for it's it's like a whole thing, but we'll talk about the differences in a minute, I'm sure. And I didn't even put it in my recap. In the book, we have a whole thing about Lestat's dad. I do want to talk about the characters that they omitted. Okay, let's do it. Because I think that the characters in the book that they chose not to carry into the movie makes sense from a cinematic angle, like changing Louis's brother into a wife and unborn baby. Which makes it more tragic, but also takes away a little bit of that religious Religion. zeal because in the book, it was very much, he was, he wanted to be a prophet. And like, Louis was like, I believe in saints and prophets, but my brother, could my brother be a prophet? Like that seems ridiculous to right. me. And so he laughs at him and like, and that really sets a tone about, you know, did he, was he responsible for his brother's death and like his reaction to what is sacrilege and profane and like, I mean, that carries a lot, but yes. In the there movie, are some interesting bits there. Like, like you could write, a, easily write a couple different papers just on his brother and the symbolism. And so his brother had a vision that if Louis didn't give away all of their money and sell the plantation and and stuff that he would come to ruin it would be like he needed to do it and then Lestat comes for Louis because he wants Louis's money his wealth so his brother was correct in his warning to Louis 
But then Louis tells the boy when he asked the interviewer, the boy, who, by the way, when I first saw the, the opening credits, I was like, who the heck is Christian Slater in this? I don't remember him <laughs> at all. <laughs> oh, right. They actually had to cast someone in that role. It's not just a figurehead for the reader. <laughs> in the movie it's a person but I think not naming him leaving him as the boy in the book makes it so the reader is essentially in his position oh yeah we forget about him completely and in the first half he occasionally asks a question or like turns his Mm -hmm. tape over and then like for the second half it's just all which which bothers me a little bit and I'll get to that with the narrative style but yeah so Louis tells the boy in the interview because he asks him directly do you think he really had these visions and louis is like i don't believe so so despite the fact that the vision was accurate mm-hmm. and, that and that louis, louis had his own vision later right and louis knows that supernatural things exist right but there is a bit in the book that i was like i actually kind of appreciate that she put this in there where Louis says, you have to remember that visions and all these things are just words for mental illness that people didn't understand. You know, they, they called it demon possession, but really he was probably schizophrenic or something. So I'm like, okay, actually, I, I like that, that that was included because, you know, it's very historically accurate to the time. Now, I have a question. Why do you think it never occurred to Louis that possibly Lestat killed his brother? He never goes there. He never goes there at all. But what happened is that they Mm -hmm. argued about him giving up his money. So they had this conversation Uh in which he was urged by his brother to do the thing Lestat didn't want him to do. And then he went outside, Louis turned his back on him, and suddenly his brother had fallen down and died. And we know that vampires can move super, super super fast. fast. Okay, well, Lestat hadn't really entered into Louis's world yet. Yes. So I'm guessing for Louis, it's a before my brother's death, after my brother's death, which is also before Lestat and then after Lestat. I see Louis as compartmentalizing. He does, yes. I also would see it as Louis needs his guilt. Mm -hmm. Like he needs the thing that's going to carry him over and like affect him. And if he wasn't responsible for his brother's death, if it was Lestat, I mean, he already hates Lestat, but like, then that would take away from how, how Louis sees himself. So I feel like he wouldn't be able to like even comprehend that it wasn't his fault in some way. I also sense. think that his fatal flaw is that he's personally weak and he's willing to, to indulge in his guilt on things that don't actually like affect him super emotionally, right? Like he'll feel guilty about killing random people. But he won't kill people he's close, he's met or had a conversation with because that mm-hmm. to him, like, like it, the guilt would be too close. He wants some separation from his guilt. And he consistently makes certain choices that kind of avoid confronting issues. Like in the book, he knew, he knew the entire time that Armand had killed Claudia and Madeline. He knew it, and yet he continued in companionship with Armand for like a hundred years after that. Mm-hmm. And when Armand realized that, and that his actions had been the thing to kill the last part of Louis's humanity and joy that Armand was attracted <laughs> to, that's what then Armand like presumably walks off into the sunrise, right? Louis is good at avoiding the things that he should be guilty for. Like there is no drop of remorse anywhere in the book for being a slave owner ever ever even 
even after 200 years have gone by and like, you know, the world has changed. It, 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 it is an easy offhand. Oh, well, that's the way things were back then. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it, he, it's easy to compartmentalize it. Well, that was different. Times were different. We didn't know better. Right. And I'm like, it's a lot of excuses that people say now rather mm-hmm. than going, that was wrong and never should have happened. And I'm sorry, (laughs) or trying to make any kind of restitution. I also think it's interesting, though, that they make him kind of like a proto-feminist because he's like, I felt for this woman, Babette. So that's another character who was left Mm -hmm. out of the movie. She's in the book. She's very important. He was really drawn to her because she was strong and blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, Louis has a type, right? But she was in danger because of the patriarchal system that they their society that they lived in and so like he he was able to come in and white freaking night with her and be like you can do it girl be a boss babe and she was like yeah the spirit told me that i have it in me to do it so i will so then like you know he was like her jiminy cricket and so then she was able to save the family and do the things and blah 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 okay great he's all self-proud of himself for that but then when he needs her help and she finds out what he really is and she rejects him he takes it oh, oh, so personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, how would you not expect that to happen? Like, of course, you've been telling her that you're a magical being and she thinks you're a magical being for good. And now you, it turns out you're a magical being who just killed a bunch of people at that plantation over there. Mm-hmm. How are you surprised? But yeah, the, and her rejection of him, again, he feels like he overfeels about that without feeling nearly as bad about all the people that he, you know, were killed in the fire mm-hmm. or- any of the other stuff that Lestat was doing. It's like, it's like one of those things where you're like, oh, I regret that that happened, but I'm not going to do anything about it. So like Mm -hmm. he regrets that he's going to kill tonight, but he's still going to kill tonight. You know, Mm -hmm. like I feel bad for all the people I've killed, but I'm going to keep killing people. So how bad do you really feel, Louie? Right. So Mm. I just watched another series where a dude who was pretty weak gets turned into a vampire and the first thing he does is tell the girl he loves everything that happened and then and this happens right before sunrise on the water and the sun comes up and boom he burns to death and like he did that deliberately so that she would believe him and I'm like that is the kind of strength that Louis lacking that strength of moral character that's like I would rather give up my life and face whatever damnation awaits me if that's going to happen, then harm a single other person. What here. was that that you watched? Called Midnight Mass. Yeah. But that scene mm-hmm. is like, oh, that's what should have happened. But that's the sort of conversation I think that Interview with the Vampire started was those sorts of moral questions in yeah. how far can you go in preserving your life? And where is the line? Are humans just food for vampires? You know, is it immoral for them to feed on us? Or are they just happy meals with legs? <laughs> <laughs> nice Buffy shout out there. Right. Okay. So another character is Lestat's dad. So what happens in the book is Lestat has his dad. His dad is old and blind and sick. And he moves him into Louis' plantation. He's taking care of him. And the dad gets all the finest foods and all the best blankets and blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, and he's waited on. But Lestat is a 
dick to him. He is super mean to him. He leaves the room. He yells at him. He calls him names. He belittles him. He's like, I take care of you. So blah, 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 blah. he's like a total ass to his dad, right? He, this Lestat has dad issues and the dad does not seem like a bad guy. He seems like, like he's a frail, sick old man, right? And we don't know if he mistreated Lestat when Lestat was young or if he was just poor and Lestat hated that. We don't really know. At least I don't remember what, you know, what the drama was. But what we get to see is Lestat being cruel for the sake of being cruel because he's not killing his dad. Like killing's bad, but then you're dead and you don't care anymore, right? It's it's this kind of eternal torture, but this very passive aggressive controlling kind of a thing. And it's just shitty behavior for no other reason than I get to be shitty to you because I can. And that is the personality of Lestat throughout the whole book and by taking that out of the movie well, they changed Lestat's character in a variety of ways but I feel like that was like this early signal that oh this is a different Lestat because we don't have him just being a wanton dick to his dad for no reason yeah I I think that they did a lot a lot of changes in the movie from the book that dehumanized Lestat and did more to humanize Louis they brought them further apart. Further in the apart. book, th- there was a little bit more overlap of them in the book sometimes. You know, they sometimes yeah. were kind of on the same page, not always, but in the in the movie, we have it very clear distinction. Louis is this, Lestat is that. And mm-hmm. Lestat is playful and kind of funny. And like he he's over the top and he's charismatic and he's violent and he's cruel and he's all these things, but he's also you know, he's a lot more than just that. In the book, he is literally the bad guy. That's it. It felt like they were chaos versus order mm-hmm. in the way they approached stuff. Like Lestat needed Louis specifically because Lestat had no concept of how to handle money. Yeah. And he needed someone to manage their life. So Louis did all the, the planning and arranging and the, the hiring. Yeah, cough, cough, emotional labor. Right. He did all the, all the things a woman would do. And I think when Lestat was without Louis, he couldn't manage. Mm-hmm. And he also got this weird sadistic pleasure in denying Louis knowledge. Like both him and Claudia at some point decide, oh, he just doesn't know anything. But he kind of did know one very important point that he didn't bother to tell them, which is if you kill another vampire, you're going to get hunted down and murdered. And also you can't just slip my throat. That won't kill me. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, so but he, yeah, he, he did have some knowledge that he was keeping from them, but he acted like he had a lot more, more knowledge, knowledge. That, that he was keeping, which is, it was a classic abusive mentality, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know the world is too big and scary. If you didn't have me to protect you, you wouldn't be able to function. Yada, yada, yada. He pretty much yeah. like checks off all the abusive lists, things, yeah. right? Like blows hot and cold love bombs <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> like throw destroys your things when he's mad you, you know but not his thing your things um <laughs> disappears threatens to withhold his love says i made you i can take i can kill you you belong to me i own you the only way claudia and and louis could see out of it was to kill him even though they never tried to leave otherwise and mm-hmm. eventually they did leave and Lestat was still back there alive and he didn't find them for ages. They spent right. a long time in, in the Carpathians. Yeah. Which I, is I always took that now. as 
two things. One is that it took him a long time to heal. Mm-hmm. And two, to like, he didn't know where they had gone, right? He just knew that they were sailing away. So and the world is pretty big, especially in that time, right? You know, it's harder to get. And then you have to get passage. And I can't imagine him being super good at the pa- getting passage on the boat exactly. and arranging the thing. And like, cause he's just fumbles around. It's amazing. He even made it to Paris and it's amazing. He made it back to, to right. the U S after the fact, like what is interesting to me is that, okay, because we have Lestat's dad in the book, we know that Lestat was human. Not that terrible. Not that long long ago. Ago. He doesn't have a lot of years on Louis in the book. We don't get that at all. No. In fact, he's like, somebody made me the end. Like there's no, we don't get anything about what happened to, you know, or his mm-hmm. family and you get the vibe that he's been doing this a lot longer. And part of that is his showmanship to make Louis, you know, think that he's God's gift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but part of it is like, because we're not giving any context, it does seem like he definitely has been a vampire longer, a lot longer, a lot longer, yeah. not just a couple of years. Yeah. It's interesting. Another thing is their, their monsters don't seem to do well by themselves. Like they mm-hmm. need other vampires, but they're also terrified of each other. It's this, it's like they, they need abusive relationships because those are the only relationships they can have. But without any kind of relationship, they go mad very quickly. Like they need someone that's contemporary. And I think one of the, th- one of the, the truly evil things done to Claudia was that they turned her when she was so young that she would never be able to make companions for herself. He yeah. deliberately created a vampire that would always be dependent on them would always need them that could never leave and start their own coven their own little family group separate from them and couldn't be in the world alone exactly and Armand because looking so childlike you know right the way Armand describes the kind of the way it's supposed to be or the way it used to be was that the young vampire would be cultivated and trained And then they would be a companion to the old vampire until they no longer needed them. And then they would go their separate ways, but it would be like agreeable. And then they would find, and then the the young vampire would then, you know, become an ancient and, and be able to do that for the next generation of vampires, but that they would take people from each age because they needed that connection to the the spirit of the age whatever that means whatever that well okay and then armand has a young boy who sleeps in a cage in on a bed in armand's room who's not a vampire but knows about vampires and is getting bled on the regular but not being killed which tells us that yes you could just drain people you don't have to kill them every single time which doesn't seem to be a thing that lestat knew and then so then he didn't teach that to louis right lestat was doing that to the young man in the very end too before turning him into a vampire so it seems like this almost like grooming thing that they would yeah they would take a young man in this case in both cases and have them live with them in the lifestyle and feed on them and give them really good food and why and And that was definitely in the book a lot more about this young boy who was Armand's you know companion and all of these things and one of the things that really pisses Louis off is that that kid dies or isn't there or whatever and Armand doesn't seem to fucking care yeah Armand's like oh yeah I killed him 
And Louis like, dude, like you were grooming him. Like, how could you just do that to somebody that you, you know, that you were supposedly cared about? Mm-hmm. But we get the vibe that that's what had happened to Armand because he talks about my master and Armand is young. Like he looks young. He yeah. looks like a young man, not an old man, not an Antonio Banderas. I'm in my late forties, man. And he's auburn haired, which I made a point of because I'm sorry. I know we're skipping now, but like Antonio Banderas's hair in this movie, I don't know if it's a wig or just, bad casting but that hair needs to go it is atrocious okay let's talk about casting okay when i first watched this movie back in the 90s one of the few things i remember thinking about it was that i thought the casting for lestat and louis should have been reversed that i thought brad pitt would have brought a more realistic air to the role of Lestat and made him a little, a little bit less completely monstrous. And he would have gotten that like turmoil inside him where he blows hot and cold. But that's me looking at Brad Pitt when, from his other subsequent worlds, like 12 Monkeys and knowing he's capable of that kind of depth. And I thought Tom Cruise, I was like, okay, putting Tom Cruise in a blonde wig is bizarre to me. I'm sorry, he looked weird. He does not look like a natural blonde. He looks like he should be a brunette and it's just weird. So giving him these flowing blonde locks, no. But I feel like he could have done the pensiveness of Louis. <laughs> no, see, okay. I don't know. I don't know. And I've heard other people say that too. In fact, Anne Rice herself hated the fact that Tom Cruise had been cast and was really upset about it until after the fact when she watched it. And then she was like, okay, yeah, he did a good job. She originally wanted Rudger Howard. And then at one point she wanted John Travolta. I mean, yeah, not okay. So that means I think that the casting was fine. I think Brad Pitt is like this, this pretty boy with like more going on, but it's, you got to kind of dig. And especially at the time, like what had they, but what other movies had both of them done? Right. Like Mm -hmm. I, I think Tom Cruise is actually a really good actor. I think he's a kind of a weirdo as a person, Mm -hmm. but I think as an actor, he does, he is really charismatic. He's compelling. He's really, really good. So I, I bought him as Lestat. I, I, that was fine. The, the blonde hair was a little weird, but it was like, okay, I don't know. It didn't phase me all that much. And mm-hmm. I thought that Brad Pitt just really, especially with the long, luscious locks, you know, and this, and his eyes being what they were. And like, the, the, the effects of their lips were always a little bit shiny and their eyes were kind of glowy and like they had the veins and, and whatever. I, I totally bought it. The casting that bothered me the most was, was Antonio Banderas. Banderas, which was just awful, awful casting. And then, okay, so Kristen Dunst was Claudia and they did this in the movie. They aged her up. She wasn't five. She was like 11. Makes so much sense. You can get an 11 year old to act. A five-year-old is a whole different ball right. of wax, right? Also, it's a lot less disturbing and yes. this did have to like go out and have people see it. And there was already a lot of hoopla about this 11 year old vampire sucking people's bloods and killing people. And, yeah. and then like the thing, there was like an on-screen kiss between Kristen Dunst and Brad Pitt on the mouth. It, it's like a blink and you miss it. And I feel like her hand was right there. Like maybe it, it, it was covered. Yeah. They, yeah. They, so like, okay. Or, like his head was in the way. <laughs> Right. She was 12 and he was what, 30? Like uh-huh. it's a, it's a, uh, but you know, okay. So it would have been worse if she had been a five-year-old child for sure. And I think yeah. Kristen Dunst, she looked the way I imagined Claudia. She definitely, but I, she was like dead on for how I picked Yeah. Her. 
that that was it and i thought she did a good job when she was angry like yes. i bought her anger and stuff like and you know it's hard for a 12 year old to act like a 48 year old trapped in a 12 year old's body i think she did fine i i also think that the role is sort of suited to a child actor in a strange way because the vampires are portrayed as being cold and very still and and with these like moments of outburst and and rage and sudden movement but they go from like very still to action to very still to action to you know and i don't know a child just naturally doesn't put as much effort into their movement and their facial expression and stuff so it sort of it fit she was yeah. a, she was a china doll and then she was a rage machine then she was a china doll and it, it, yeah. it was natural i thought that was very well done i have some other things that i liked about the movie Okay, yes, talk about please. that. Okay. I really liked the addition of the piano in the movie. They have Lestat teaching Claudia how to play the piano. The piano is a thing. They have the very creepy scene of them finding Lestat playing the piano with all of the, the you know, the, that was in the, the book, curtains right? and stuff. It, they mentioned it, but to me, the piano felt like a much bigger deal yeah. in the movie. And I, I liked that a lot. I mean, also in the book, we, we have the three fires in the book. But it was really cool to see the three fires yes. in the movie. And of course, like we know the narrative thing, power of threes, right? The first fire is the plantation going up and, you know, Louis freeing the slaves and then him setting, you know, he's destroying his past in the movie. It almost looks like he was trying to commit suicide because he's just like in there ready to let it happen. Like who knows what's going to happen? And Lestat comes in and saves him, you know, takes him away. And the second fire is them fleeing from Lestat again, ending a life, like ending this part of, of their life, starting a new chapter, killing Lestat, like no one's going to rescue Lestat. And then the third fire is killing the people, you know, again, starting a new chapter, like Louis is a firebug. When it comes to like needing to move on, Louis's not going to pack up his house and move. He's just going to burn that shit to the ground. I liked how the fires were all connected to the most extreme emotional events in the book, where the, the plantation, that fire is happening at the same time Lestat's dad is dying. So the slaves are rioting and preparing to burn it. And the vampires inside are focused on this very intimate human suffering that's that's happening and louis is forcing lestat to say he, he forgives his dad he's like just say you forgive him so my dude can die already so, and so it's this it's almost like they're, they're completely ignoring it but the fire is that foil for their emotions that's happening inside and that that severing of that human connection where they're but they both have to let go of their kind of last of their human lives and move on as proper vampires. And then the fire at their flat is happening, like it happens right after they try to kill the spot. And they're in the process of leaving that life behind and fleeing. So it's all this emotional turmoil going on. And then the theater happens like right after they, the, the murder of Claudia and Madeline, which I'm sorry, if it's wrong to kill vampires, like they just murdered, I mean, okay, sure. Claudia attempted murder. Is it still a death sentence for attempted murder? Madeline didn't do anything. So yeah, seriously, this was this happened to be there. Like if and anyone deserved to get revenge, it was Louis in that situation. Cause he yeah, was for sure. by them. For 
sure and they they had a thing where it was like it's 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 another sin to make one so young but Louis is not the one who made her. Lestat is the one that made her. So if you're all about corporal or capital punishment, Lestat is the one who broke the law because mm-hmm. he made a young vampire and then she was just, you know, taking out his punishment, right? Mm-hmm. She took care of him. And like you said, attempted murder. Now, the difference though is in the book, they knew Lestat didn't actually die because he shows up in Paris and he's like, yeah, she tried to kill me. and blah. But he's definitely there to win Louis back. Mm-hmm. Like that's his thing. He didn't expect it to get as out of hand as it did, blah, blah, blah. Okay. That's what he's there for. In the movie, we don't see Lestat in Paris. So we don't- We don't you know. know. They, it makes the, more the vampires, sense in the movie. Yeah. They're like, no, you killed him and you need to die. Mm-hmm. And the way they kill Claudia and Madeline is- it is, it's, it's hardcore, man. You know, I mean, I did read a funny thing on the internet that was like, based on the longitude and latitude of where Paris is, there's no way that the sun could actually come in to that well at that exact thing, you know, right above them to burn them. So obviously they must've escaped and lived happily ever after somewhere else. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fan fiction. Um, now, but- so there's certain changes that were made to the vampires in the movie versus the book and I think it makes sense because the movie would have been a lot less magical and exciting without the changes but stuff like the vampires couldn't fly okay seriously I have wait hold I have a list okay here we go (laughs) vampire powers flight reading minds magic cleaning up of your skin Mm -hmm. because you can just suddenly not have blood on you anymore awake during the day right because we literally see okay sure magic they're magic they have magic powers also oh they can climb on the ceiling gravity is not a thing for these Mm -hmm. vampires i can climb up on a ceiling i can climb up on this tunnel my hat also apparently will not fall off my head Mm -hmm. so my magical powers extends to my clothing lestat can like climb on the ceiling but flying flying but Mm -hmm. then we don't do it again later but it would have been useful Mm -hmm. right (laughs) what the hell man (laughs) (laughs) and i okay from the benefit of hindsight being she wrote this book in the 70s it was made into a movie at that point she had started to write her other vampire novels she wanted them to have magical powers so she put them in the movie and then they have these it's especially the mind reading that becomes a huge thing later on so okay but yeah i was like every time one of those magical things happened i was like "Uh, okay that's right here we are and then it had it forced slight plot shifts too. Mm-hmm. Like the Louis timed the burning down of the theater to be right before dawn because he knew the other vampires wouldn't be able to wake up if they'd already gone to sleep. They wouldn't be able to get up and out in time. And yeah. the movie, because they could be awake during the day, they just all like burst out. And I'm like, well. Is there no sewer system they could have gone and crawled into and hid or something? Seriously. Like there was element of them being trapped because of the sun, the, the, the nearness of the sunrise. And, and I really liked, and they took this out in the movie, but I like in the book that they're, one of the weaknesses the vampires have is that they literally lose consciousness when the sun comes up. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter where you are. So hopefully you're already in your coffin. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, you're just screwed. Like, and you will lose consciousness and then you wake up when the sun goes down. And this becomes a huge point. Yep. And, and it's so not the, like full, you, you can survive as long as you, you know, the sun's not right on you. It's like hardcore 
yeah. sunlight hits you and you are dying. You're so dead, dead, dead. They, they're so, like sleeping in their coffins with not a crack. They are freaked out about the possibility of someone opening a door. Yeah. You know? So in the mythos of this book, Claudia and Madeline are in that thing. The sun comes up, they lose consciousness, and then they die. Mm-hmm. So it's not as graphic. It just right. couldn't possibly be as no. graphic. But because we've, we've now established for only for this movie that you can get up and like walk around, walk through a room with a pane of sunlight on the floor, as long as your little toes don't touch the sunlight, you just, you know, creep around the corner to go get into another coffin or to hang out over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. But talking about religious elements, mm-hmm. that's a pretty big religious tie-in too, because yeah. the darkness cannot survive the light. That's pretty big. You know, you can't, you cannot, darkness cannot walk in light, yet the vampires crave light. And there's a lot of fire, right? The mother and daughter cleaners that, that Claudia killed that were burned in the, in the oven, that they just left there, they forgot yeah. about, and then they had to deal with later. And then her and Madeline being burned up later, it's that the mirroring of stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of mirroring things in the book. Another big change that the movie did was the final scene, mm-hmm. which is the, the, you know, Lestat showing up and uh, draining Daniel and pretend, and, and that the addition of the line, I'm going to give you the choice that I was never given. That was not in the book at all. It makes it, you know, sound like Lestat was made against his will. And, you know, so he's magnanimous. He will allow you to choose for yourself. That was a huge change, right? Because Christian Slater was running like a bat out of hell uh-huh. because he was terrified in the movie rather than Seeking still it. going to seek out the vampire after being drained because he wasn't even bitten No the movie. He was just, he was like, just startled. startled scared. <laughs> and, you know, and then that was enough to like scare him straight, right? And then, yeah. and then he got drained. But in the book, he like, he was almost drained completely uh-huh. wakes up the next morning and then still goes to search for Lestat because that yeah. he really wanted that I feel like it was just she had to end it somehow and so she was like I can't just end it with him passing out I have to do something and maybe I'll want to write another book so he grabs his stuff and then off he goes you know like so I, I thought it was cheesy as heck, but I um, I actually really did like the final scene in the movie because it was just so over the top and the music that starts playing, the Rolling music Stone song. Yeah. Was, was phenomenal, the word choices, you know? Please allow me to introduce myself. Yeah, it's yeah. a good song. It's a good, good song. <laughs> it was, and it was a great choice for Lestat. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so the book changes. They omitted that it, the entire Carpathian mountain bit, which makes total sense for yeah. them for a cinematic narrative. It right. I didn't even put it in my recap. They found a village and there there's vampires and oh my god, and we're gonna kill people because they might become vampires and people are traveling and then they find the vampire. But they're like a different kind of vampire. And yeah. they asked about them and the vampires and parents parents are just like, oh, those are like remnants or revenants or something i can't remember the word they use to describe them but those are just these things and we don't talk about them really like, yeah they're different we don't talk about them in the story and the impression those I are the country like, cousins yeah <laughs> those are the, the country cousin vampire and i was i when i read that i was like i wonder i wonder if this whole bit is just like world building for future novel i don't remember at all 
I feel like I, okay. Because there's a little bit like, you know, have you ever seen a vampire who's like starving and like, there's like this thing about it, but these vampires are not starving. They were like clearly eating people on the regular. So like, yeah, but they're so brain dead. Like it wouldn't even communicate with him. Well, and Louis speculated that what happened was they were turned and immediately buried and yeah. it took them like months to get out of their graves. So, so by that insane. time they were insane. So then that sure. makes me think like somebody's out there making them to just be like, F yeah. you humanity, you know? And we already know that Lestat was made by somebody not great. It was this whole side tangent that was weird. So the book is split into four parts. There's no yeah. chapters, which is an interesting oh. design choice. There are sort of breaks. There, there's, you. you know, it's like scene breaks, but they're not chapter breaks. And by the time we get to the the end of the first part, it's like halfway through. Part one ends on page 158. Mm-hmm. Part two ends on page 200. Yeah, so. so much shorter. Part three goes pretty far because part four is very short. Oh yeah, part three ends on page 318. So we went from two, so 318, so 118 mm-hmm. pages. And then part four ends on page 342. <laughs> yep. So it's even shorter. It's tiny. Yeah, it's like a an afterword. And I, like I said before, part one was a faster read for me because like so much happens in part one. It's a lot less of people thinking about things and there's a lot more actual action. Mm -hmm. The first part feels like there's more action because that is where Louis is closest to his humanity and his roots and the events that formed him and that were important to him. So he spent time on there when objectively like, yeah, the, the whole theater section is more active. There's more Mm -hmm. stuff happening, but it's all in the way Louis talks about it. The words he uses. And I think that's why he he was surprised when the boy asked to be turned into a vampire. He's like, have you not been listening to me? And I'm like, he has been listening to you. He just (laughs) hasn't been listening to your story. He's been listening to your word choice and your tone and your body language when you're talking about these things and you are making them sensual. Like he keeps talking about body at which, oh God, the way that he talks about that little girl vampire, cause she was five in the book. It was disturbing. Okay. I have the same thought at, at, and I was like, this feels a little incestuous. I know eventually she grows and it's, she's trapped in this body, but she's a grown up brain. And like, he loves her. They're definitely like, so vampires are not into sex, right? No. In this in this world, okay. So it, you can't say that they're lovers. They're like he and Armand; they loved each other. But th- this is not sexual. They're not human, and they are. So it would be inappropriate for us to put human actions and desires on these non-human supernatural things, okay? Mm-hmm. So okay, so there's that. But it is very creepy in a lot of ways the way he talks about her. But then I read that she wrote this originally as a short story and actually in the 60s because her daughter died. Oh. Her young daughter died. And I thought, okay, so it's obsessive, but it's not, and it's it's a love obsessive, but I feel like it is that. that She's more Madeline. Madeline. Yes. Because Madeline wanted to be turned so that she could have a child that wouldn't die. 
Right. Um, but I feel like the way that Louis talks about Claudia's body and her plump little arms and her soft little face and all of these things, I actually, I mean, and I try really hard not to bring too much of the author into books normally, sure. but I feel like, cause it felt weird to me that he would talk about Claudia in that way. And I was trying to figure it out. And I feel like it is actually Anne Rice just still so traumatized by the death of her child. I could see that. On the other hand, there's a scene where Claudia asks Louis what sex is like. Yes. And he that is replies, <laughs> it's like feeding, except that feeding is 10 times better. And then he taught uses these words with her. She's so sensual. They call each other lover. At one point, he ha he has to correct himself because he refers to them as being wed. We were uh -huh. wed, dot dot dot. And then he no, we were family or it's, it's like he changes it but he was he was there mentally and he like stops himself and changes it yeah and because i think that the the act of feeding because it is essentially 10 times better than sex but has that same element as sex when they feed together it's like they are bonding sexually well and and this the sexualization of the feeding was more in the movie i felt mm -hmm. like they they made a, a much bigger deal about it definitely and, well and even like early with Lestat and uh and Louis with the bar wench mm -hmm. you know and they're t they're taking her at the same time mm -hmm. to, and she's into it and enjoying it at first you know mm -hmm. and there's a thing that happens in the movie that does not happen in the book where Lestat when he's teaching Claudia how to you know how to suck blood and he says gently don't mm -hmm. cause pain and he says, you know, don't take too much, but blah, 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 blah. Like he's aware that's not the Lestat in the book. The Lestat in the no. book would be like, rip the arm off the person and drink what you want, right. you know? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I know that there was a lot of like incestual stuff and then a lot of like LGBT, the fear mongering that went along. All oh, these vampires are super gay. And I, you know what? I don't think that they are. I, cause again, I don't feel like it's a human thing. It's not humans doing human things. I feel like it's kind of, this sounds like I think it's great, but it's beyond that. You know, it's a it's a step removed. Um, and I'm not saying like we should all be like this, but I definitely I see how people read into I see how people read that. And there's definitely death of the author, and she's definitely talking about uh people who have to make their own sense of found family, people who are not welcome in society, people who are different and and might be you know ostracized and run out of town and like all of that stuff. There's a lot of overlap between the LGBT experience, especially in the 80s, especially in the 80s mm -hmm. when we talked about AIDS and like the risk and like the fear and the fear mongering and blah blah blah. blah. But I don't feel like this is like a gay book. You know what I mean? Right. I feel like these are about supernatural beings that cared for one another in a way that we don't really understand because we're not those supernatural beings. I don't know if that makes sense. So but. my perspective on it was that the vampires, all the things that they do and the way they interact with the world is supposed to be seen as a perversion of things that we do that are good and natural and normal. So it's like, Claudia, as the little girl, yes, they care for her and they love her, but it's in a perverse, inappropriate way for mm. humanity. So it's like the parent-child relationship perverted and that the, the elements of the, the coming across as gay is like, this is close friendship and love that's perverted, that's gone wrong 
you know, that's right. we've brought in this this sin and this darkness into these things. Family love and connection, all this stuff, but it, it's only it only exists because they're monsters, because they participate in monstrous things together. It's like bonding through depravity. I totally buy that for the Claudia familial thing. I just Lestat and Louis are companions and that is such an abusive relationship thing that that is not you know and then but then Armand comes along and the two of them are obsessed instantly like instantly they're using these words the the words that she uses consistently or that Louis uses as descriptions he uses love a lot yeah right he's obsessed with it it's it you know I love and he says that to Armand like immediately I love you to the point of giving up Claudia for him. Obsessed is another word. I was obsessed. Mm-hmm. I was enamored. I was drawn. Drawn. I, you know, inexplicably, inexhaustibly drawn to, yeah. And this and, is and, why and, Christian Slater's character wanted to be a vampire. Because yeah. who wouldn't be drawn to those dramatic, over-the-top emotions? <laughs> yeah. Right. But he's not understanding that those emotions can't be fulfilled. They're just longing. They're like, he wanted Armand, but he couldn't have Armand because Armand wasn't what he really wanted, which was to be human. Yeah. And I I love that, you know, Louis' descent is is what we're seeing. Like first, Mm -hmm. you know, he's sad. Then he becomes a vampire, but he only eats, you know, rats and whatever. And then eventually he's eating humans. And then eventually like he, you know, then he's a part and party to this Claudia business, mm-hmm. right? Cause he doesn't kill her, right? You know, she's an abominate, but okay, whatever. And then eventually he makes Madeline. Like that's the thing he'd said he would never do. And he does that too. And then he murders a whole bunch of them. You know, I don't, I don't he gives into his rage, you know, like the one time Louis does anything really is like this big big thing and so then he's like i'm done like there's nothing left for me to do mm-hmm. and there's this thing about rejection and how rejection can be very powerful especially when it comes to the closure and so like that those final scenes between lestat and louis where lestat's like come back to me and blah blah and louis's like no and it's not just rejection i realize it's apathy which is even mm-hmm. more cutting like louis's like i don't even fucking need you like i i'm fine later's like he just doesn't, it's, I, you don't even worth my time to reject. And that mm-hmm. is so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a character change for Louis for sure. But then you think, but is it? Cause he's still kind of just like moping around, not doing very much. Right. Like he's lived for quite a while after that encounter with Lestat uh-huh. and he doesn't have Armand. He has no companions right now. What's he doing? Watching movies. Right. Because now he gets to see the sunrise. In film. Okay, so we've talked a bit about Anne Rice's writing style. I felt that this is a hard book to skim. So if you're like one of those readers that, you know, is sort of the gist kind of reader, I don't think it would necessarily work. Like I had to reread certain sentences several times to figure out who she was talking about in that, just with the pronoun usage. And some of her sentences are like, so long it's like i and they're beautifully worded it's just too many words way too many words like i read one one line over and over to my husband like i read it about three times to him he's like i still don't understand what that means because armand here's the here's the, the quote armand um is talking about 
the vampires, about how Louis is the spirit of his age. And they direct quote, I like, I liked how many things I underlined that they actually put in direct dialogue in the movie. It made me feel good. Like, oh good, I got the core things out of the book that they felt <laughs> included in the movie. That's nice. So the, the Louis being this, the broken heart and the spirit of his age, but Louis's like, what about the vampires in the theater? And Armand says, they reflect the age in cynicism, which cannot comprehend the death of possibilities. Fatuous, sophisticated indulgence in the parody of the miraculous. Decadence, whose last refuge is self-ridicule. A mannered helplessness. And I'm like, that is a beautiful sentence. And understanding it really requires you to read it multiple times and ponder it. It's not something you're going to get and be like, yep, and just move on to the next thing. It requires you to sit there for a minute and be like, okay, let me picture Victorian society <laughs> and what's going on here. So the pros are complicated, sometimes hard to follow, very prosy, very florid in their in how they come across. Do you have anything else? Cause we're kind of like hitting our time too. So do- I wanted to talk about the narrative style that she chose, just the, um, the interview style. Okay. Because the whole thing kind of reads as dialogue almost mm -hmm. when you're reading the book, because it's all Louis describing. So it's a first person. It's an interesting choice. It's like one of the, the probably one of the first mass market paperbacks that was done in that sort of first person narrative style, but she chose to do it as an interview. And I felt that was a little mm, tongue in cheek because it's not really an interview, is it? It's more like Louis sitting there and monologuing at the boy and occasionally pausing going you look like you have a question I'm sorry but the monologue of the vampire just right? wouldn't work as well it wouldn't I, I wondered about that too first of all because it's an interview every paragraph starts with a quotation mark like mm -hmm. every because there's the dialogue and then there's the description yes. but the description is dialogue and I was like how much ink is being wasted here by freaking quote? I mean, they're every single paragraph. It's insane. But I thought, would Louis sit down and pen his memoir mm -hmm. for the world? Or does he have to have an audience? And is that why that's like there's a person here? It's yes. not just Louis being like, let me, dear person who happens to find this notebook in the attic tell you about my life, you know, what I mean? which it very easily could have been. And I feel like it probably might've been, you know, but we have this interview aspect. So like, there's a little bit of danger, but also like audience participation. And then the idea of like, there's an audience, there's somebody listening yeah. and Louis needs to not just speak into the void. He wants to make sure somebody hears him. Yeah. That and sense? that's, there are elements to it that I understand why she chose it. And it makes complete sense. Like, I think it's very important that the boy at the end asked to be turned into a vampire and Louis's response to it, because it's also our response to it, right? Yeah. We, we're like, we have that same, why on earth would you want to do that? That's insane. And we're forced to confront that part of humanity that longs for those things that that wants to be more than human it's almost the seduction of drugs I first when I first started reading the book I told Joe like the, when Louis was turned I'm like this sounds <laughs> like people's description of being on ecstasy you know one of those kinds of drugs that like the world looks and feels so much better 
Like it's Mm -hmm. just so much more. It's so intense. It's so magical, which leads me into the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is that movies are able to connect with your two main senses very well, hearing and sight, right? That's that, but, but they also very much rely on just those two. It's incredibly hard to get in touch, taste, smell in there. But in the book, those elements were very important for setting the mood, for how the vampires felt, for what they were thinking, for why they behaved the way they did. And it's because they were having this intensity of sensory input that was key to understanding the seduction of being a vampire and that lifestyle. That from from just a, a looking at it and hearing it, it's a lot grosser. It, you don't get the seductive quality. I feel like quite the same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, are you ready for some trivia? Yeah. Trivia fact number one: the makeup for their vampire look involved the actors having to hang upside down for 30 minutes so all the blood would rush to their heads so that then the makeup artist could draw the veins on to them. And so when they would have to reset a scene, if it was taking too long, they'd have to pause and hang them upside down again for another half an hour so they could draw. I hope that makeup stuff has come forward in time and that they don't have to do this for people because this just sounds miserable. Brad Pitt apparently was so uncomfortable in the contacts that he had to wear and in this that he tried he almost tried to get out of this movie after it was being shot and made and it was going to cost like 40 million dollars and so he stuck it out but like yeah man i feel you so okay christian slater was not the original daniel originally it was river phoenix and oh yeah okay he died uh so he couldn't do it obviously christian slater donated his entire salary to one of river phoenix's pet charities because you know that's nice um let's see here oh i already told you that she originally wanted john travolta but he was too old and can we all just say thank god (laughs) and oh so they actually did film the scene from the book where lestat comes to paris and says hey they tried to kill me and he's in the theater day vampires but then they cut it but it was actually filmed. They, it was originally going to be part. And I, that's such a huge change that it's, it's very interesting to me that they, they filmed it that way. Yeah. Okay, and now for the fun trivia, the Star Trek trivia. I know the reason why most of you are still listening at this point is to find out the Star Trek trivia. First of all, Tom Cruise was supposed to have a cameo in a J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie as Commander Pike, Captain Pike, but he did not which is probably for the best. Okay, Slater, Christian Slater appeared in a cameo, speaking of cameos, as the night duty officer in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. He has a line and everything. And the reason he got to do that was because his mother was doing the casting for that movie and Christian Slater's a huge Star Trek nerd. And he's like, I just want one line. I just want to be and wear a uniform. And he got to be in it, so that's cool. Uh, Kristen Dunst, okay. She was actually in a Star Trek Next Generation episode. She was Hedril. It was the seventh season episode, Dark Page. She was Deanna Troy's little sister who died when Deanna was little. So, yeah. And she did that in 1991. So shortly before this movie. So there you go. That is your, that is your Star Trek trivia. 
yeah was this movie worth your time was this book worth your time or vice versa you can answer either either order you wish i don't think the movie was i think (gasps) i know i only think it was worth my time in the sense that it's a nice thing to see where it all started where the the current trends in vampire stuff started but i feel like if this movie was, was done today it would be a better movie because we've moved into a more darkness being more comfortable with much more open depravity in horror movies and and i think it would have been more horrific if made today and it definitely would be darker one of the things that really bothered me with the movie was how physically light it was like there's one scene like oh it's night and I'm like it doesn't look like night it looks like full-blown daytime it, it this this shot is so well lit <laughs> like, every scene is shockingly well lit compared to today's horror films where you're like let me see if I can catch what's happening here it's so dark it's, so, it's like so yeah I and and a lot of the meaning in the book I felt did not translate to the movie, that they sacrificed the moralizing and the symbolism and the meaning and stuff for just getting as much plot and magic into the movie as they could. So it's a fun movie, but it's it lacks the depth of the book. They like all the depth in the book just got sort of sucked right out of the movie for me. The book definitely made me think and, and it was a fun ride. So I think the book was more worth my time. There were passages that made me contemplate them. The words were just enjoyable to read at times. Part of it reads like poetry. So it's a it was worth reading on several levels. But I think it was only worth watching on the one level for like, this is the start of the current trends in vampire fire movies and books. I have to agree. I think the book is super worth your time i mean and i i i know people people roll their eyes but i i think it it has a lot to say and i think it says it well yeah it's verby verby it's overly verbose yes that is true yes the descriptions sometimes you know get excessive but you know and say what you will about the rest of the vampire chronicles Anne rice thrives kind of in these historical fiction books cry to heaven Mm-hmm. my memory of it anyways is a, it was an amazing book I, it's been a long time but still you know and she there are these big moral ethical questions I like the point that's being made about not taking things for granted like the sunrise you know you don't have to wait till it's your last one to dwell on it I like the lesson of you know are you who you are or can you be more or different who gets to decide that you get to decide that. I like the idea that we have in the book of old Lestat sitting there in this crumbling mansion being like, my youth was wasted, even though he's immortal. He can't even see that he still has stuff because he's so obsessed with the past, he can't possibly move forward. And I feel like that's a very human thing that we have. We, we As old people, we, we're, we you know resent the young, even if we're not quote unquote dead yet. I like the idea of closure and how apathy and forgiveness, you know, forgiveness is all well and good, but apathy can also work, you know, and that's okay. I, I really like the idea of, are we going to fight our nature? Or are we going to accept our nature? Are we sinners? Are we good people? Are we bad people? And that internal struggle, and I'm going to bring freaking Star Trek into it again, but Kirk says, you know, I'm uncivilized. I'm a savage, but I choose to not kill today. Mm-hmm. Like that's a thing. And that's, that's the struggle that we as humans have to go through. And I thought that the book did that maybe not perfectly, but it's there. 
And you don't have to look that hard because it's there a bunch, you know, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of words here. The first half of the book flew by for me. The second half was a little bit longer. It is an interesting story. There are moments of actual like suspension and you're like, oh my gosh, what's about to happen? Yeah. The book is, is actually, it is, it is totally worth your time. And I don't think I'm just committing nostalgia side to say so. The movie is fine. I think it's fun to see Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise in these roles. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of fun to see where a lot of these tropes started. I think Kristen Dunst does a great job. I think it's, it's, it's very beautiful. The cinematography is great. I love that both Lestat and Louis are introduced to us from the back originally, like our first shot of Mm. both of them is from the back. And like, there's a lot of these little cinematography things. There's like little Easter eggs. There's it's interesting. It's shot. Well, I agree with you that it's not as dark and scary as maybe it should have been or could have been. It got the rated R and there is blood but it's not actually all that. Sh- I mean, mm-hmm. it's shocking, but it's not disturbing. And I think it could have been disturbing if they decided to tell that story. But I feel like the movie was telling a slightly different story than the book was telling. And so for for what it was doing, for being this cinematography thing, for bringing something that was written in the 70s into the 90s and launching vampire stuff, you know, mm-hmm. it does a fine job. And, you know, so totally watch it or or not again i liked seeing brad pitt and tom cruise it had been a really long time and so that was kind of it was kind of fun to see the 90s version of the past <laughs> you know yeah which is which is a it's its own thing you know how we viewed the past and like not to get super political here but how the people in the 90s viewed the slaves you yeah. know it's very different than how the slave scenes would have been shot today so you can learn a lot about then i i also really like little things in the movie like how they reference the turning of history's page and said and brad pitt's like mm-hmm. and now because of this we were all americans you know like it, it touches mm-hmm. in these, these these cultural touchstones and we could see them aging because their outfits changed and 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 stuff like that so that was it was kind of fun it, a lot of cool set designs and stuff so yeah there you go your mileage are very but i i actually think that people should read this book and give it a try and not just think of it as the Louis from the movie being all morose and mopey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. Well, Leah, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for being here again. Thank for- you for having me on. It's always so fun to dust off the analytical part of my brain. Yeah, no, for sure. I always know we're going to have a nice long episode <laughs> and I, you always bring such cool stuff in and I'm like, I mean, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even get into all the historical stuff because I like nerded out a bit with how good she was at all the historical stuff, like the whole theater of the vampire and stuff. I'm like, oh, I bet that she said that at the point in the Paris Revolution in art when they were exploring all that macabre, you know, because that was a thing in Paris theater. So it makes sense and it fits and the choices, all of her historical stuff, it was well-researched, all of it. So yeah, it's the, the book I don't think is going to annoy a lot of people on those points. If you're a history nerd, it's probably not going to drive you nuts. I mean, I'm sure there's a there's always a few things in historical fiction, but for the most part, I think she did an excellent job on that. The movie, probably, you know, if you have a really good eye for cat for costuming and stuff, you might be like, eh. 
I don't, I liked the fact that it was, he was an indigo, you know, mm-hmm. it felt very believable. I liked that the, he talked about sugar and like the, the yeah. hell of yeah. sugar and what sugar really was and what it does to people and how, and not from a nutritional, but like the processing of it. I, yeah. The historical aspect was really cool. Again, most of that was in the first half, first of, the half of the book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The first half I like, I, I, I went so fast. I was like, look, this book is not going to take me very long at all. And then it took me three days to fit, read the second <laughs> half. <laughs> so, um, anyways, but yes, so always, you're all, you're obviously always welcome back to talk about more exciting, fun books. And if you have questions or comments about this episode or for Leah specifically, feel free to email us at pages and popcorn at gmail pages and popcorn podcast at gmail.com find us at kmma media and um look for the blog post that's for this episode with our show notes and our sources and an adorable picture of leah and i which i'm about to take right now and again thank you so much leah this was super fun and now you know you're being recorded so there oh got it i'm being recorded Got it. <laughs> does it. Does the thing come up on your screen? It does. I have to oh, click. I approve or I got Oh, it. I didn't know that. That's hilarious. I wonder mm-hmm. what would happen if you just didn't. Would it just not record you? <laughs> I think it would. I think that would be so screwed <laughs> up if someone was like, "Oh yeah, I talked a lot," and then I said shit about so and so and so and so, and Kaylee is like, "He he he," and then I go to listen to the file, and it's just me going, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Tell me more." be hilarious.